Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. The trial of Derek Chauvin is underway in Minneapolis. Chauvin is the former police officer who held his knee on the neck of George Floyd for more than nine minutes last May. Floyd died, and his death set off a wave of protests around the country. Here in Chicago, Officer Jason Van Dyke was convicted of second-degree murder in the fatal 2014 shooting of teen Laquan McDonald. But police officers are rarely prosecuted for on-duty shootings or killings, and even fewer are convicted. Why is that? And why does the justice system appear so tilted toward law enforcement? And what, if anything, do police unions have to do with it? Craig Futterman is a professor of law at the University of Chicago Law School and a resident dean of the college. He's also the founder of the Civil Rights and Police Accountability Project at the U of C's Mandel Legal Aid Clinic. Professor, welcome to Reset. Hi, Sasha. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get into the larger issues here of police prosecutions or lack thereof, what did you make of the first day of the trial in Minneapolis? Because one side seems to be saying, just look at the video, right? And, And the other side is like, well, don't look at the video. In lots of ways, at least the defense is following the standard playbook in cases of police abuse, which is seeking to put the video on trial. And there's a theme that I heard the prosecutor using, you can believe your eyes. And the other side is, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? And defense wants to say that it's something much more than those eight minutes and 46 seconds of video. And so... It's off to the races, and everyone, um, I know the entire nation, is is watching on the edge of their seats to see what will happen. Will justice prevail in this trial? Absolutely. Day two is, is underway right now. You were quoted in the New York Times yesterday, though. You said you think that the defense should put Chauvin on the stand. Why do you say that? This is one of the age-old things that criminal defense lawyers debate, and the common wisdom for years is never put or rarely put your client on the stand. And I think that that's problematic, as you see that most folks are convicted, and particularly in a case like this, particularly when there is video that and so that it's so damning and that we can all see the life of Mr. Floyd leave his body before our very eyes and the police officer kneeling over him. The issue in the case, and, and a critical issue in the case, is the officer's intent and the defense is, I didn't intend to hurt him or do anything wrong. I was just trying to restrain him. I think it's really difficult when the jury sees that video and will see it again and again to find that the officer doesn't have intent that intent unless they are persuaded and, and to be persuaded, I think, they actually need to hear from him. At the same point, I acknowledge that is a huge risk because that means that Officer Chauvin will be subject to cross-examination by the prosecutor, and if he comes off as a liar, if he lies, that's pretty much suicide. Well, to your point, I talked yesterday on the show with uh, scholar and historian Duchess Harris. Uh, I asked her toward the end of the interview what she'd be watching for next, and uh, she said that she would be paying close attention to how the defense, how they're going to make clear that uh, he 
used reasonable force, right? Or, or what, what reasonable force is and how they'll address the fact that Officer Chauvin is sworn to provide this duty of care. What can you yeah. offer from a legal perspective there? It's one of the things that will be interesting. I think you'll see both sides, both the prosecutor and the defense, cling to police issues about police training. The defense is going to say, I was just doing, and they are saying, I was just doing exactly what I was trained to do to restrain someone who was resisting arrest. And the prosecutor is going to say, yes, you were trained, and indeed we saw um, a witness, a martial arts witness expert who took the stand yesterday and said, you know better, and you were trained about these risks, and you know that actually what you were doing was new you're putting someone in extreme danger and harm. Um, but yes, the reasonableness of, of Derek Chauvin's use of force will be a centerpiece both for the prosecutor and for the defense in this trial. I mean, the defense has a lot to try to overcome when just, you know, this is one of those rare cases similar to the Laquan McDonald case that you referenced at the beginning of the show where um, there's been almost universal condemnation across politics, across race, across class, including by fellow police officers and police leaders yeah. of the officer's conduct here. So that's a, a mighty tough road to hoe. Let's move beyond the, the current trial here and get to some of the bigger issues. According to a study out of Bowling Green University, there are around 1,000 on-duty fatal police shootings each year in this country. But since 2005, only 126 officers have been arrested for murder or manslaughter. That's just under 1%. Only 44 of those have been convicted and only seven for murder. The rest were lesser charges. So even if we said most of those shootings were justified, how do we explain such a low number of convictions for the ones that weren't? Yeah, and first, first as you said, I just want to reiterate that number. Only seven officers have been convicted of murder in the United States since 2005, and that's seven out of about 16,000 police killings, just to put that in perspective. Um, to me, first and foremost, um, it's about race, or more accurately, racism. Black folks are more than twice as likely as people of all their races to be killed by police in the United States. Indeed, in Chicago, more than three-quarters of the people killed by police in the last 30 years have been black. But while black folks are most likely to be killed by police, they are systematically excluded from serving as jurors in the very civil rights cases involving police abuse. And you'll see that, and, and this is actually one of the exceptions, the Chauvin case, this is one of the rare times we've actually seen a diverse jury, because one of the standard questions asked of every potential juror in these cases is whether they or anyone they know has ever had a negative experience with the police. About eight years ago, we founded something that's called the Youth Police Project in Chicago, a collaboration between my law students and the Invisible Institute. And for the last eight years, we've talked to black high school students on the south side of Chicago about their experiences with the police. While our focus has been on everyday experiences, what one of the things that we've learned, and this perhaps is obvious, is that nearly every high school, black high school student we've talked with on that south side of Chicago, either personally or know someone close to them, a family member, a close friend who has been falsely arrested, who's been beaten, who's been harassed, and some even been shot and killed by the police, has had the same conversations, including at the school where my children used to go, at lab school in University of Chicago, predominantly white, and almost nobody had a negative experience with the police. And so what this means is that U.S. juries are systematically excluding 
and often for cause, people from the communities most impacted by police abuse, the very people most likely to understand the experience of victims. And second, I mean, most people, it's just be honest with one another, don't want to convict a police officer, period. If it comes down to who you're going to believe, the police or our black victim, we all know how that comes out. We're taught as at a very young age to see police as heroes, as protectors, the people who put their lives on the line to protect us from them. The heroes we see in the movies, the TV shows, risk their lives, catch the bad guys, keep us safe from violence. And most people of all races don't want to live in a world where the people we empower to keep us safe are predatory. That'd be a scary place. And the problem is, is that scary place is all too much reality for many people in black, brown, and low-income communities, who the us is in terms of people who feel protected by the police and who the them is, is them, safe from whom, is, is really key to the conversation. Yeah. Other things, and I mean, and video, as much as a game changer as it's been, it hasn't changed that infinitesimal chance of conviction that you've just talked about, even in high-profile cases and videos that have shocked the conscience of people around the country, from Eric Garner in New York to the killing of 12-year-old Tamir Rice in Cleveland. Most of the officers in each of those cases were never charged. And you may remember a story in Cincinnati a few years ago of the killing of a black man in a car. His name was Samuel DeBose, shot and killed by an officer, Ray Tensing, as he tried to drive away. The prosecutor there found nothing less than murder. Murder. And Tensing was tried two times, both times jury deadlocked. And there's been no third trial because what the prosecutors concluded is that people in Cincinnati will never convict a white officer of killing a black man. So these are some of the key things that I can add to that. And I'll yeah. stop, but I'll well, add. Yeah, well, I want to ask you this. Oh, please. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I want to throw this in there for time here, you know, because state laws are, for better or worse, they're created in tandem with influential groups, you know, that have skin in the game, so to speak, right? So lawmakers might work with environmental groups to keep drinking water clean, for instance. Um, lawmakers also work with police unions to pass laws that protect cops from prosecution. When and how did police unions get so much power? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the police unions have a dramatic amount of power in the United States. And when you're talking about not just the laws, but who prosecutes the police. And the vast, vast majority of prosecutions are left to local state's attorneys or local DA offices. And necessarily, there's a symbiotic relationship between the police and the very prosecutors, because who do the prosecutors rely on to prosecute their cases? You don't bite the hand that feeds you. And then, as you just said, you add to that the political power of police unions. If you're a prosecutor and you prosecute a police officer, that could also be political suicide for your career. And that's led to calls and, and righteous calls for things like independent prosecutors and independent investigations of police. And at the federal level, um, what we've also seen is that the feds have generally lacked the political will to bring these prosecutions. The feds have wide discretion, but in the entire history of our nation, it's never been a political priority of the United States Department of Justice to prosecute local police officers who killed black people. And indeed, yeah. in a study that was done out of Pittsburgh a few years back, looking at three million cases prosecuted by the feds um, over a period of 20 years, they found that federal prosecutors refused to pursue civil rights charges against 96 percent 
of police officers who refer for prosecution. For every other crime, DOJ rejected um, only about 23 percent of the referred cases. If you thought about just immigration and, and illegal reentries, virtually 100 percent of those cases that are referred are prosecuted by the feds. In the interest of time, I'm going to ask you this last question, because you and your students spent a year trying to get the Laquan McDonald video released. At the time, you said that your biggest fear was that nobody was going to care. Of course, people did, uh, and they cared when it came to this George Floyd video and so many others. Are we as a country headed in the direction that you would like to see when it comes to police reform and accountability? Well, I hope so. Video and activism led by black folk have succeeded in creating far broader public awareness by white folks of the reality of systemic police abuse against black people in America, and not just the reality of abuse, but also the systemic cover-up of that abuse. And that activism has led to possibilities of meaningful change. And that said, at the same time, we've also are experienced a visceral backlash that are embodied by the reactionary police unions. Trump, the rise in organized overt racist groups, obviously the insurrection on the Capitol, racism, institutional denial, secrecy remain alive and well in America. But to me, seeing hundreds of thousands of people across race and class around the world, around our nation, who've stood up to protest police violence and racism to affirm that Black Lives Matter, that gives me hope, Sasha, because I know we have to do better, and I, I think we will. Professor Futterman, I've got to have you back on the show. So this is my open invitation right now to have you back so that we can go deeper, because I know we didn't even get to touch on the blue wall of silence, these so-called bad apples, you know, qualified immunity. There's so much more I want to talk to you about. So Again, Craig Futterman is a professor of law at the University of Chicago, specializing in civil rights and police accountability. Thanks so much for your time. We'll talk soon. Thanks again. And that's today's Reset. For more conversations around race, policing, and reform, keep watching this space or go back and search the Reset archives at wbez.org reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.